the New Testament. And just for sake of argument, you said, you know, let's imagine a scenario in which every New Testament has been utterly destroyed by some evil future regime. Well, how would you know what happened in the first century that caused it to be the first century? If you have no New Testament, would you know anything about Jesus? Could you know anything about Jesus? Well, it turns out, yeah, the fuse and fallout of history will tell you exactly what kind of bomb Jesus of Nazareth was. So if you didn't even have a New Testament, you could just from history alone reconstruct the story of Jesus, I think to the point at which you could actually recognize who he was, his historicity and his deity. You could even put your trust in Christ as Lord, even if you had no access to a New Testament, just from the evidence and the fuse and the fallout. And that seems like an outrageous claim, but that's the kind of thing we're trying to talk about in Person of Interest. Welcome to the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Garrick Bailey. In each episode of this serious but lighthearted podcast, Timothy Paul Jones and I explore evidences for the truth of Christianity. And along the way, we even talk about movies, music, and culture. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and receiving shirts, mugs, and more, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Apologetics Podcast, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. I'm Garrett Bailey, and I was once drugged by my ear through an entire mall after knocking over several clothes displays in a department store. That was a good time. (laughs) And I'm Timothy, and I was actually going to say something different, but after you said that, I'm going to tell about something that happened to my daughter. I once had to take my daughter out of the department store because in the middle of a very expensive clothing section, she had a styrofoam cup from Chick-fil-A, poked her straw out the side of it, and it started spouting on all of the clothes. So we've all had adventures. Yeah, you, I I can attest. I wasn't there, but I can attest to the fact that Timothy did not escort his daughter out of the store by her ear. I did not. I did not. I did try to do so hiding as much as I could, though, as, as it spewed Diet Coke all over the store. Well, today we have an amazing discussion with Jay Warner Wallace about his new book, Person of Interest. But right now, before we do that, it's time for Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History, where we take actual artifacts from the history of Christianity and put them into battle against one another. And so let's draw our weapons for this week. Garrick, you go for it. What have you got for us this week? This week, I bring to the battle, I don't know if this would be an offensive or a defensive weapon. I'll let you decide after this. I bring to the battle the Cages of Munster. That's right, the Cages (laughs) of Munster. Munster is a place in the world. Where is Munster? It's in Germany, I think. Yeah, I'm 99% sure that you're correct. So let me read you this quote. 
After lengthy resistance, the city, Munster, was taken by the besiegers on June 24th of 1535, and John of Leiden and several other prominent Anabaptist leaders were captured and imprisoned. In January of 1536, John of Leiden, Bernard Nipperdoling, love that, <laughs> and one more prominent follower, Bernard Krechtin, were tortured and executed in the marketplace of Munster. Their bodies were exhibited in cages which hung from, and still do, the steeple of St. Lambert's Church. The bones were, thankfully, removed later, but the cages hang there still. So without the bones, I guess, since they don't currently have the bones, I, I guess I have to present them without the bones. But I bring to the battle the empty cages from the steeple of St. Lambert's Church in Munster. And instead of capturing Anabaptists, I plan to use them to capture you, a Baptist. So yeah, let's see what you got. All right. How are you going to Stay free of my cages. I am bringing out my Yoda bucket, in which before we started recording, I found my long-lost harmonica as well. And so what we have in the Yoda bucket is, we're going for the macabre today, let's oh, just well, say. Much of we church history is, with, you know. Yes, it is. Uh, we are going with a corpse infected with the bubonic plague Ooh. is what we have today. So as people may know, the bubonic plague, 14th century, killed 50 million people, one-third of the population of Europe. But what they may not know is that the corpses were used as a weapon. So what happened in 1346 is the Mongols attacked Kaffa, which was an Italian trading post, and they catapulted corpses that were infected with the bubonic plague into the city of Kaffa to try to kill off the people that were in there, to infect them with the bubonic plague. We don't actually know for sure how effective that was. But nonetheless, that whole scene in Monty Python where they are catapulting the cows, that happened the other way around, but with corpses of the bubonic plague. And if you've never watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail, well, maybe don't. But if you have, you know what we're talking That's about. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. And so there we go. So we have cages to capture people put up against corpses infected with the bubonic plague. What should we yeah. say about this, Garrick? Well, listen, for sure, cages could never outduel the bubonic plague. That's certain. Let me make that acknowledgement. But you yourself said that we have no idea how effective the catapulting of corpses actually was during this time. And we are quite certain that the cages of Munster were very effective, <laughs> quite effective. And anyone who visited that site for several hundred years would know that. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Yeah, at the same time, they only killed three bubonic plague, 50 million. <laughs> That's, yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. If you were bringing the bubonic plague, right? Like there's no doubt that you would win the battle. I'm just saying that at this point, all you have are people who have died from the bubonic plague. You can't be for sure if you're able to infect me with it. I'm just, just I think saying. What we could say either way is that a cage with somebody in it who had been infected with the bubonic plague oh, is something that is fearsome. So that I might say be. we put the two together. If we join our, we, <laughs> we join forces. If we join our dark forces. <laughs> join me, and we That's will right. rule the empire. 
together. Yeah. So I think that's what we do. We put the corpses in the cages and then we do something with them. I'm not sure. Yeah. This turns into a Megadeth song pretty it does. soon. Or it turns into a Soundgarden song. I'm just saying, do you think, is it possible that the song Rusty Cage was in fact about the cages of Monster? joining us on the Apologetics Podcast. I have with me today Jay Warner Wallace. He's a widely recognized cold case homicide detective, a national speaker, best-selling author, all-around great human being who continues to consult on cold case investigations while serving as senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He's an adjunct professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, and he teaches at Southern Evangelical Seminary and a faculty member at Summit Ministries as well. All those things. Thank you so much for joining us again today on the program. Boy, if only we were as good as our press clippings. Wouldn't we be know, awesome be people? <laughs> right? <laughs> if only yes. I was that good. Well, the first time I add head you on the program, I ask the question that I ask every first-time guest on this program, and that is, if you could be in any rock band, what rock band would it be and what would you play? And I remember that because it is one that I would consider was definitely one of my top five anyway, and that would be Neil Schoen and the band Journey. Neil Schoen also played with Santana, Bad English, one of the most melodic players ever. And he not only just played melody and harmony, he knew how to use the guitar as an instrument to texture things. Just an incredible musician yeah. and overall. Well, I, I, always, I always thought too, Timothy, like his his backstory, right, with Carlos Santana when he's a kid and he would just get like, you know, four measures to, <laughs> to do his entire solo. And so yeah. this guy ended up being one of the fastest, most nimble guitarist. Now he could always do that, but when he got to journey by that by that time, especially by the time they they add Steve Perry, you could tell he was really thinking about how to make the guitar sing like a like a vocal instrument. now is what guitar you would be playing on stage with Journey. So describe that instrument, that setup oh, that you'd man. be using at that point. Okay. Well, so I started off with the Strat that I got back in the early 70s. And so I had that for you. I still have it. It's hanging on the wall in my garage here. My son ended up using it when he was on worship teams. But I got a little, this is going to sound like a stupid, this is going to maybe sound weird, but there was a I'm not sure they still make these, but it was probably in the later 70s. Les Paul made a guitar called the Paul. It was not a Les Paul. It was called the Paul. Okay. It was like all one. I still have it hanging here. And it's like all one color, all one piece of wood. It was just, it was kind of, it was lighter, much lighter, but it had the pickups were just sweeter, like less tinny.
Well, I want to talk about today another person of interest other than Neil Schoen, who is certainly a person of interest. (laughs) But we'll talk about a much more important person of interest to us, who is, of course, Jesus in history, true historical person, and one who is testified to in the text that we have. And you've written a book entitled Person of Interest. And a great book. It really is just an excellent book, Person of Interest, in which you basically give several reasons why Jesus should be considered a person of interest for every human being. And you weave the evidences for Jesus into these points of interest. And that's what I think really you do well in this book, is you weave the evidence into the points of interest. And you started with talking about something that most of us have never experienced, have never encountered, and that's just this idea of a no-body case. And you talk about the Hayes case, this no-body case. Well, tell us about a no-body case, what this means, and what on earth does this have to do with the ultimate person of interest, who is Jesus? Well, if you were to just Google no-body murders, you'll find that there's lots of stuff written for district attorneys. I mean, this is like one of the worst. Most attorneys won't even touch these kinds of cases. It's like, when, for example, uh, I've had two of these now where husbands have killed their wives and then reported them missing and been so persuasive that they convinced the initial detectives and even the family of the victim to where I had one case where 30 years went by and the family never once called our agency to say, hey, is anyone investigating this case? Now, you would think that would happen, right? But no, they were convinced and they really wanted to believe that their daughter was still alive. And he did some clever things along the way to make it seem like she might still be around. Like he would call and hang up. He would call and, you know, on holidays, on kids' birthdays. So people held hope that she was still alive. Well, ultimately, when I opened the case, I've got no crime scene. No one took any photographs, no body, no physical evidence. How do you make a case like that? Well, what I typically tell jurors is that, you know, on the day of the murder, if it's a murder, and it's not just that she ran off, a bomb went off. And we don't know what kind of bomb that was. But you can always tell what kind of bomb it is because every bomb's got a fuse that burns up to the detonation. And then after it explodes, you've got debris everywhere. And so we can tell you what kind of bomb this was just from the fuse and the fallout. And so that's how we make cases like this. We don't have anything from the day of the crime, but I have the fuse and the fallout of history for the suspect, what he did to prepare for the crime, what he did afterwards that made him look suspicious. That's the kind of stuff we're focused on. And it ends up being enough to, to convict people. And I've had at least one of these where the guy afterwards will confess. And tell us, yeah, okay, I did do it, and here's where the body's located. That's the kind of thing that we are talking about with a no-body murder. Now, the reason why I'm taking that approach is that if you didn't trust the New Testament, and just for sake of argument, you said, you know, let's imagine a scenario in which every New Testament has been utterly destroyed by some evil future regime. How would you know what happened in the first century that caused it to be the first century? If you have no New Testament, would you know anything about Jesus? Could you know anything about Jesus? Well, it turns out, yeah, the fuse and fallout of history will tell you exactly what kind of bomb Jesus of Nazareth was. So if you didn't even have a New Testament, you could just from history alone reconstruct the story of Jesus, I think, to the point at which you could actually recognize who he was, his historicity, and his deity. You could even put your trust in Christ as Lord even if you had no access to a New Testament, just from the evidence and the fuse and the fallout. And that seems like an outrageous claim, but that's the kind of thing we're trying to talk about in person of interest. 
Yes, and just an excellent book. I really commend it to our listeners that you pick this up at some point. You talk about the cultural fuse. I found that one to be particularly interesting. And in that section, you talk about natural and probable consequences. That is to say, what's going to happen if nobody ever intervenes? And so this becomes really important for the book as a whole. But specifically, you you focus on what would have happened if Jesus had maybe been born in another time or another place. And you talk about this cultural fuse. What does this have to do with Jesus being who the Bible says he was, this idea of a cultural fuse and the context in which he was born. Yeah, it's interesting that Paul says that Jesus came to us in the fullness of time that God sent his son. Now, that's really interesting because you kind of come ask your question, what does that even mean, the fullness of time? You could say, well, you know, it's God ordained. Well, everything you could say is God ordained in that sense in history, right? Because God is in, in charge of all of these things and has the power, certainly, to intervene any way he wants. But it is curious, right? And people will ask this question, wouldn't it have been better for Jesus to come now when you've got all this access to media? and the whole world could hear it. And I actually don't think that's true. I think it's just the opposite. And I think what's interesting about when Jesus comes is he comes at a time that is not nearly as noisy or skeptical or as polarized as we are today and still has access to just enough technology. And the cultural fuse is part of that. It turns out that he comes at a time when the Roman Empire is governing basically the strongest governing body in the entire planet, and most of the, all the area around the Mediterranean for, for sure is under, under Roman control, and they basically conquered their enemies to the point where there's a 200-year period of peace called the Pax Romana. And during that time, the Romans, they could shift their resources toward infrastructure. What we used to spend on wars, we can now spend on things like uh, roads and aqueducts and bridges and tunnels. In fact, the roads that were necessary for the message of Jesus to travel, the very roads that Paul traveled, for example, weren't even available just 200 years earlier. Those were the creations and you know this idea that every road leads to Rome actually was something that the Romans actually wanted to accomplish. And so if you had come earlier under a different regime, you would have had the limited stretch, basically, the limited reach that maybe the Persian Empire could offer you or the Egyptian empire could offer you or the Greek empire could offer you. But by the time Rome's here, you now have access to the right kind of writing devices, the right kinds of, you're not on stone or clay anymore. You're now using papyrus, which we have been for some time, but you have now have an alphabet, which has robust vowels that can make, that make it possible to write with great distinction and great specificity, the Etruscan alphabet adopted by Rome. You have a Greek speaking language that now has been adopted by the entire region. You have a postal service in place that has far more reach than any other predecessor in terms of postal services. And you have roads and infrastructure in place, and even the kinds of traveling devices, you know, the chariots and the, the wagons and the places you could actually get places where you could not get before. That is the timing that opens up a window of opportunity. Because all this begins to change, really, as the end of the Roman Empire approaches, as the Pax Romana nears its end. You have a window of time in which to operate. And you even have a certain level of at least initial religious pluralism or tolerance within the Roman Empire so that a fledgling belief system like this could get started and someone like Paul could be a missionary all over the empire because of the infrastructure that's just now in place. So that timing is important. It's one of the reasons why Christianity explodes at the rate that it does explode then eventually becomes the religion of the empire. 
Well, you also talk a little bit about pagan parallels to Jesus, and I think that's a really important thing. That's a topic that I hear about from college students, from people searching on the internet. You talk about a copycat savior, things like that, but you also talk about some pagan parallels to Jesus. What would you say to that person who says, hey, there are all these other religions, Mithras, there's all these others, and basically Jesus is just like those. What would you say to that to say, no, Jesus actually isn't quite like those? What are some of the things you would respond on that? Well, and one of the things too is what I try to talk about this in the book, and it's hard sometimes. This is why the book is so heavily illustrated, right? That was the one area I could actually exercise some creativity. And I, I was an illustrator and an artist before I was ever a police officer. So I got to draw my own illustrations. And we did about 400 for this book. And so a lot of what I'm about to say, it makes much more sense when you see it charted out and you see it visually. But it turns out if you were to examine the ancient mythologies that precede Jesus, okay, you will find that those mythologies, if you just compare them to each other, Attis to Osiris to Mithras to Heracles, to whoever you want to compare, you will find that there's about 15 overarching similarities between the ancient mythologies. Now, not everyone's got all of them. As a matter of fact, somewhere between six and 10 attributes are shared by all of those ancient mythologies. And they are the kinds of very, very, very broad expectations that you would expect any people group to think about when they're thinking about deity or the possibility of a deity. Why would you be surprised that people imagine a God, and if there is a God, that he might appear supernaturally, that he might defeat death, that he might offer us a chance to be live on beyond the grave? I mean, these are things that are just very general. But if you look at the actual details, they're very, very different in how they are expressed in each mythology. But interestingly, they all have common expectations of the ancients. And the only person, an actual real person shows up in history who embodies not six, not 10, but all 15 of the, he's the only one who embodies all 15 of the attributes. The other myths have some, now I say myth, I'm not referring to it as a falsehood. I'm referring to the way that C.S. Lewis refers to myth, a narrative about deity, about origins, how we got here, what God, world God plays in our lives. Those kinds of narratives, right? C.S. Lewis puts it this way, the ancient myths are the stories from the minds of poets. And so they vary based on what their culture is. Whereas Jesus is the God's myth that's grounded in what we call true things, real things. And that's the difference is that, and this is what Paul is talking about in, in Mars Hill, right? He's saying, hey, you folks are like really religious. I mean, there's a ton of gods you guys worship. But we're here to, to share with you the real God. And here's how he separates the difference. He says, your gods, we know that Jesus is the real God because we saw the resurrection with our own eyes. He proved it by rising from the grave. Here's the difference Paul's basically saying. Your stories about God are based in the minds of poets. They're from the minds of poets. Ours are from the observations of an eyewitness. There's the difference. As a matter of fact, if you read the mythologies that precede all of the common era, all those mythologies in, in antiquity, you're going to see that, that they don't claim to be eyewitness accounts. They're not even written as eyewitness accounts. They're written as fables that people believed. But he's saying, hey, now we can tell you that Jesus is really God because 
None of you can say eyewitnesses saw your gods. They're not even part of the story. Here, it's all based on eyewitness accounts. There's the difference. It's what Lewis is talking about. Myths from the minds of poets versus the story of God from God himself grounded in real things, which can be observed by eyewitnesses. That difference to me, it turns out that it's not that, first of all, if you think that Jesus is another dying and rising savior, you really have to stretch the mythologies in order to make that kind of claim. And if you think that somehow ancient Jews in the first century writing the Gospels are trying to convince Jewish readers that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah by doing the one thing the Jews had always been warned against, incorporating the other gods of other cultures and piecing those together, good luck with that. That's not going to work. And in fact, what's powerful about these similarities is that they actually, if you wanted to show up in history, when the most ancients who are thinking about God with common expectations are still thinking about God and still exist, those systems are still in place with those common expectations that then Jesus can personify most robustly, you'd have to come within a window again. And that window is a little larger than the Pax Romana window for culture, but that window is still has got a limit because you know Osiris is only going to be worshipped so long. These gods are not worshipped forever. A lot of them are no longer worshipped at all. And it turns out Jesus comes right in the middle of that period of time. He's in the window both for culture. He's in the window for spirituality. He's even in the window for Jewish prophecy. By the time those windows overlap, you're talking about about a hundred year opportunity from about 30, 29, 30 BC to about 70 AD. That period of time is exactly when Jesus arrives. So that's what I think Paul is talking about when he talks about the fullness of time. And the way you find that is by simply examining the fuse. What is the fuse leading up to the appearance of Jesus? And that's what I think is pretty remarkable. And it's not that I'm finding it by working Jesus backwards. No, you could discover that before you ever even know what it is about the first century that changes history. So it's just a matter of examining the fuse. And one of my favorite things about what you do in that section, I think is really important, is so many Christians, when they hear about a pagan parallel, they think, I have to refute it and say there is no pagan parallel at all. And instead, we need to do what C.S. Lewis did, which you're doing in this, and C.S. Lewis did it in Surprised by Joy, is to say, look, there are some parallels, but they are exactly what we ought to expect. But also, there are aspects of these that are contrary to what we would expect if we're making it up. And these are really important things. Yeah. Well, here's what's interesting. And I've had a a skeptic kind of say this. Well, if you're talking about the parallels, all things they have in common, all these common descriptors, the pagan mythologies are pretty debaucherous. I mean, they're also stealing from each other. They're stealing each other's wives. They're stealing the wives of humans. They're killing humans to get their wives. They're constantly promiscuous. They're liars. They're all kinds of other evil things as well. Okay, that's what's really interesting. So here's what Jesus does. He comes and he embodies every divine attribute of prior mythologies while not embodying every fallen human attribute. So he stands out differently. So he defies, in other words, he does kind of, I think that probably if you were reading all through the mythologies and someone said, I've got another mythology I want to show you, you would probably expect it to have those characteristics as well. You'd be surprised to find that Jesus has all of the divine characteristics and none of the human as far as the fallen nature of humans. The other mythologies pretty much are as fallen as humans in many ways. They just have more power. Well, it turns out Jesus has all the power but he is the one sinless being. So I think that to me is actually even more evidence of something spectacular as at work. Again, it separates the myths of 
poets from the myth of God. That This is really the story that is grounded in real things. One of the fallouts that you talk about that I think is most important, and sometimes people overlook this one, is the educational fallout. That one's really important because there's so many things we assume about education, about the idea of people ought to have access to education, things like that, that we don't realize that when we have those assumptions, we are actually, even if the secularist has those assumptions, that secularist is going and asking for a loan from the bank of the Christian tradition, even if they don't realize it. Yes. That's what they're doing. Oh, absolutely. And so talk to us about the educational fallout. I think that was really important. I think sometimes part of it is because we're in a generation. This is one of the reasons why I think it's important that Jesus came when he came. Right now, everything has, has been politicized, right? I mean, let's face it. You, for the most part, we found a way to politicize every single and even when it comes to upper education, higher education, college, most of us would say, well, if you're conservative and if you're a Christian, you're probably a little bit suspicious of what's happening on college campuses because you have a sense that really a very kind of naturalistic, secular worldview dominates college campuses. And therefore, we kind of wanted like, you know, maybe we should just not have our kids go to the university. Maybe we should be homeschooling all the way through and then hopefully they just get a trade job because we don't want them to go to university, right? Well, it turns out universities are the creation of Christ followers. Now, why would that be the case? Because the Christian worldview, following on the, on the heels of Judaism, is a worldview that's of the people of the book. It's a worldview that really encourages us to examine the scriptures, to know what it is. That, that's, that's a studying worldview. And then Jesus comes along and says, hey, I want you to make converts of everybody. No, he doesn't. He says, I want you to make disciples of everyone. Oh, my goodness, Really? Well, now we're committed to a teaching worldview because discipleship is so heavily in, indebted to teaching. So why would you be surprised? But the, one of the most ancient texts still that exists outside of the Gospels in the Christian tradition is the Didache, right? It's the, the teaching of the apostles because it was used to catechize new believers. Well, why are we doing that? Because to disciple means I've got to pass on not just a way of living, but a way of knowing. And there's some content when it comes to a way of knowing. So it's not shouldn't surprise you that we're going to go to some places where we're going to raise up disciples. And they don't even have a language that they can write down yet. So we're going to, have to kind of create an alphabet, create a language, translate our scriptures into that language. You're now involved in long-term teaching scenarios. And unsurprisingly, as monasteries and cathedral schools develop, they eventually turn into the three institutions that give birth to all modern universities at Bologna, Paris, and Oxford. These were all founded by Christ followers. And as a matter of fact, those three universities gave birth to a second generation of universities from which the scientific revolution emerged. And those people who were leading in the scientific revolution were graduates and instructors at those second generation universities. This rich tradition not just involves public universities, as we know them in higher education, but Braille, he's leading the way with the blind. You've got more deaf education is at the hands of Christians were not just teaching they were teaching those that they felt were the least fortunate. They were following that tradition of caring for widows and orphans and disadvantaged people groups, even when it came to education. And you will look, if you look at the history of universities, just count them. Just do some research on how many are Buddhist, Jewish, secular, whatever your worldview you want to establish. Look at how many universities have been planted under that worldview. Then compare that historically to how many universities have been planted by Christ followers. We will outnumber all of the others combined at a magnitude of several times. 
That's how many universities have been founded by Christ followers. Then the reality of it is that I get it. A lot of universities today, even though they were, might have been founded by a Christ follower, are probably not favorably teaching anything positive about Christianity. I get that. But if you go to their original buildings, which they love to maintain on the campus, right, because it makes them look old and regal. Bologna, for example, still has many of the original buildings. You will find the images and the texts of scripture and the images of Jesus in one fashion or another. And from just the campuses alone of the top 15 universities in the world, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus from the campuses. <laughs> so you'd have to destroy more than the New Testament to get rid of Jesus. You'd have to destroy the top 75 of the top 100 universities because those universities still bear the image of Jesus in several locations. That to me is pretty powerful. It's not just that we had an incredible impact as a worldview, that the impact still leaves the fingerprints of Jesus everywhere. And the stuff that was probably most important to those of us who are not Christians, because I wasn't a Christian until I was 35, that would be for me, because I came up in design and in architecture, and then I became a detective. So I would have said, it's art, literature, music, education, science. Those five things were the most important to me as a non-believer. And those five things are so deeply indebted to Jesus and his followers that unless you just don't know history, you might think those came out of an enlightenment secular worldview. They didn't. They came out of the Christian worldview. And the way we think of science today, the way we think of education today, the way we experience art in every genre throughout history, they've all been led by people who painted, etched, sculpted, or drew Jesus of Nazareth. And he's inspired more artists than any other historical figure, more writers than any other historical figure, more music has been written about, sung by, even like we talk about, right? All the different forms of music, the instruments that we're playing largely were created or modified or evolved by Christians in pursuit of either worship or playing songs about Jesus. And here we are now downstream using some of this stuff, musical notation. Oh, Christ follower invented that. All this stuff, major and minor scales, so whether we use harmonies, the way we're doing harmonies, all of this. And it turns out we now kind of forgotten where it came from. But as an, as an atheist, that stuff mattered to me. This is why Jesus still matters. And it doesn't matter because of that. That stuff matters because of him. It's just the opposite, right? That's good. And that's just, let me hear that, listeners. It's these things matter because of Jesus. Music matters. Art matters because of Jesus. He, so that's, he, they matter because of him. And we have it because of him. And uh, we wouldn't have it. I recently, I saw a meme. In fact, I was teaching earlier today, showing people just different atheist memes. And one of them said, it listed all of these accomplishments of science and then said, basically, how many prayers did it take to get this one? How many of this? And it was mocking Christianity. And I wanted to say, Say in response, yeah, first off, you don't get that science apart from Christianity to begin with. It doesn't come about. But the other part of it is how much of science alone has created the music and the art that sustains people through that. If you think about it from a purely naturalistic worldview, then a string quartet is nothing but horsehair dragging across cat's guts. That's all a string quartet is. But when we hear that, we know there is more going on. It taps into something deep within us, and it speaks to us in some way that's deeper than the mere physical, scientific realities of what that is. Yeah. How many times have you seen someone do a song that they really want to have an emotional impact on the hearers? And they're now live, you know, they're they're doing the song at the Grammys or they're doing the song at some award show. And as part of the song that's building this drama, 
now you'll see the curtains rise and behind them, it looks like it's a, a church choir. That's, it's not a Christian song. It's not a religious song. They just know that they have to kind of bring out that. And by the way, you say, well, that's a Western phenomenon. Well, okay, if you're in the East, whatever the music you're using to worship, if you've got a pop song there, you're still going to bring out that symbolism, right? That context of the religious setting. Why? Because we end up singing about what we worship. You cannot avoid it. We are always going to be singing about what we worship. And the higher the thing that you worship, the grander, the more powerful the thing is you worship, the more noble and the grander, the more emotional the song becomes. And so what's interesting to me is to see that, hey, look at it in the West. Look at it here in America. You tell me, where is the one place in culture where people get in front of an audience on a weekly basis and sing music from a stage? Okay, that's called the church. This is a singing worldview from start to finish. David was writing the Psalms. Jesus is probably singing one of David's Psalms at the Last Supper. We were told by Paul to be singing a song. This is grounded in our DNA. And from just the first 300 years of songs in the common era, sung in churches, you can reconstruct the entire story of Jesus. And even the deepest theologies of the early church can be reconstructed from those lyrics. Even though we don't know what the songs sounded like melodically, we still have the words. As a matter of fact, a lot of denominations sing those songs that are from the second, third, and fourth century, even today. So this is a rich tradition of music. And I Googled, I just went ahead and searched through all the databases. You and I talked about, well, what's the one rock band you like to be in? Well, there's lists of what critics think are the best bands and the best musicians in the last hundred years. I've looked at four or five of them, but the three I used for the book were the IMDb, the Rolling Stone, and Billboard. Look at those hundred artists they say in the last hundred years, right? Well, it ends up being about 150 because of the overlap. And when you get done, I, I went to the catalog of every one of those artists, every one of those bands, all but two had sung a song about Jesus. Some of them are quite derogatory, but that's what Jesus does. Let's put it this way. What other historical figure can you think of who's been sung about as much as Jesus of Nazareth? Well, good luck with that. He's been written about more than any other historical figure. He has been painted as an object of worship more than any other historical figure. He has even been sung about more than any other historical figure. And that's the thing that I think ought to give us pause right? I mean, think about this for a second. Who else in history can say this? And why this guy, given where he came from? So I think it does speak to historicity. Indeed, here's why I say that. No other fictional character has changed history, changed education, established education, established the sciences the way it did. And by the way, people don't even realize how much we are indebted to Christ and his followers for science, but we are. And if you know that no fictional character has had or could have that kind of impact, isn't it reasonable to infer that Jesus is more than a fictional character? Because otherwise you're going to argue that someone like a Luke Skywalker could somehow change all of education, art, literature, music, and science. I don't think that's going to happen. And there's no other living human mortal that's had this kind of impact. So isn't it reasonable to infer he might be something other than another mortal? In other words, there's some evidence here, it seems to me, Especially when I'm not even talking about what's in the Gospels yet. If you bring back what's in the Gospels, now it explains why he's had this impact, because clearly a case can be made from the Gospels that he's more than fiction and more than mortal. And so I think that in the end, this is just powerful evidence for his historicity and deity.
Well, one of the things that's my favorite thing, one of my favorite things about you and what you do is you are not just an intellectual apologist. You really actually talk with people who don't believe and spend time talking to them. You, you actually enjoy that. You thrive on that and you talk with people who don't believe. So as you think about that and as you think about the book Person of Interest, what's one of the places you would start with a non-believer? So a skeptic that just doesn't believe in Jesus, maybe a college student who has rejected what they've been taught about Jesus and you're engaging with that individual and you're getting ready to talk to them and they're expressing their skeptical perspectives, where are you going to start? What are you going to point to first in terms of the fuses and the fallouts that you present in person of interest with that individual? Yeah, so I think that one of the things I always want to know is, you know, what would it take? I'm always asking and say, well, you know, why don't you believe something is true? I'm always going to ask that. And you're going to get different kinds of answers. Some of them may not be as, tr- as truthful as it could be, but you're going to get an answer. And then I would often ask, now, this is something that Frank Turk and I do a lot too, is we'll say, hey, well, what would it take? If I could demonstrate that this is true, would you become a Christian? I want to know really where their heart is on this issue. But one of the things about person of interest that helps is just say, okay, well, tell me, so Jesus doesn't really matter to you. I get it. What does matter to you? Because in the end, they don't realize that what does matter to them is still going to lead them back to Jesus. So it's still going to open a door for me. Because people are going to say, what matters to you? Well, I mean, there could be other things. It could be like sports. You know, I actually thought a little bit, Timothy, about putting a chapter on sports here. Right? Because it turns out that if you look at the largest sports figures in Western culture, at some point they've written or said something about Jesus that is ingrained in the literature. It's ingrained in history. So you could probably do it from sports as well, right? But I don't want to get too crazy. But I think in the end, whatever it is that does matter to you, can be traced back to one of these five areas, right? Because whatever inspires is going to eventually get traced back to the, our opportunities to write about it, sing about it, draw it, paint it, study it, either scientifically, and teach it to others. So I think in the end, I'm, I'm always asking people, but first I, I always ask, well, tell me a little bit about your story. And number two, you know, so what is it? What would it take for you to believe in God in general? If someone's going to say, well, you have to show up here right in front of us, and do something miraculous, and I had to be tested to make sure I'm not crazy, and I actually saw what I think I saw. Sometimes the bar is so high that if you think about it, I don't think that you and I could even jump that bar for them. I'm not sure that we could ever do what it is they would want us to do. And so we have to be really realistic about that. And it helps me to know that I'm still going to say something, but I have realistic expectations about how all this is going to turn out. But I always ask those first two questions, you know, what would it take and what is it that gives you pause? What is it that is causing you? Because that's going to dictate how I go forward. I learned a long time ago with with Susie was be with me, my wife all the time, and she would be talking to somebody. And afterwards she would say, but why did you even, you realize that wasn't his question. Like you assumed you knew what his question was. And even before he could finish giving you the question, you jumped onto your your little topic you wanted to talk about, but you missed it. He, He really was concerned about this. So I realized, man, she's just a better listener than I am. And her heart's, I think, more attuned. She's not quick to just give an answer. She's not answering the question. She's just trying to answer the person. And that is really what we're supposed to be doing is answering the person. So a lot of it for me now is just really trying to understand, like, what would it take? And a lot of times, if we're honest, the reasons why we're out on something is because something has happened to us. It's not just about like, you know, we're not all these blank, clean slates that are starting at zero. No, we all come with 30 years of whatever baggages you have or 15 years or whatever family structure you have or all kinds of things that shape the way you consider truth claims, that shape the way what your expectations are of God. 
or shaped your expectations of religious believers. And so I'm always trying to kind of make sure I know those before I start. But I do think now more and more I am talking about, well, I needed, in my own work, I needed to write this book just so I can get a more quantified view of the impact of Jesus that would help me to articulate it to others. So sometimes when you write a book, what you're really doing is you're you're trying to think more clearly about it for yourself so that now I have an answer in that in that category. Whereas before I had a general, and I did, I mean, I did this work back when I was first becoming a Christian and I had what I would call a blogger's sense. You know, you get to a point where you're convinced by the evidence. I'm not writing all that stuff down and sourcing it and having a bunch of end notes. Now you're writing a book. You have to kind of take it to the next level. I really wanted to take it to the next level so I could know now when I respond to this issue, I have enough in my head now to be more clear and a little better sourced. You know what I mean? Yeah, I understand it completely. When I wrote my book, Why Should I Trust the Bible? I did it because I wasn't sure, but I thought that I could get all the way from the resurrection of Jesus and the general historicity of the Gospels. I thought I could get from there to inerrancy of Scripture, but I wasn't sure. And I wrote that book in some sense to find out if I could. <laughs> and yeah, and I ended up exactly. landing there. Exactly, yeah. And sometimes we do that. We're just like, I don't know if I can do this, but I'm going to write this. And if I get to the end and can't quite get get where I thought I could, then I'll, I'll tweak it. I'll change it. But we do it. We write ourselves clear at that point. And I think it helps each of us to do that when we're in that, in that mode. Well, you've ever had that thing where you, you have your 10-minute version of how you might share the gospel or your 20-minute version, but it really helps to kind of write out your three-hour version because then it's easier to pick the 10 minutes you want based on what person you're talking to, right? And so I think I don't want to get trapped in just having the three-minute version in my head. I want the larger version that I can just draw whichever piece I want from it. This is why I think there's a great exercise for all of us. At some point, everyone listening to this podcast is a content consumer. We're listening to a podcast. I get it. Well, all of us, though, could shift and at some point, even in a small way, become content creators. And it just means that maybe you're going to, look, it's really easy to start a blog. I mean, it's really easy to find a place to put the content you create. And I think there's a number of voices out there right now in culture. We need to add more Christian voices to the conversation. So I'm always trying to encourage people who are content consumers to become content creators. And the best way to master a topic is to force yourself to write about it or podcast about it or create a short video about it, because now you've got to learn enough so you don't look like an idiot when you're talking on the video. So I think a lot of it for us is can we start to make that shift from content consumer to content creator? And I've said it in my first book, we do not need another million-dollar apologist. We need a million one-dollar apologists. That will change the landscape. And I consider myself to be just another one-dollar apologist. I don't have a degree in apologetics. I don't have a degree in languages or in manuscript evidence or in the sciences that might help me to make a case from science. I'm just a one-dollar apologist like everybody else. I have my set of skills that I bring in for my profession. They're no more special than anyone else's set of skills. It's time for all of us to take whatever God has given us and become the best case makers we can be and find a place and a way to create content that you can share with the world. We could all do this right now. If you've got an Instagram account or a Facebook account, you can post a post. You can do something to advance the gospel in your context. And I think it's time for us all to kind of step up. Well, you mentioned earlier listening to the person's story, and I think that's so important for us to ask somebody, when did you start 
feeling this way the first time, for example, when they say, I don't believe this? When did you start feeling this way? Usually there's a story behind it. And that's so true, especially with persons who are struggling with LGBTQ issues and things like that. It's so easy for us to jump to the truth, but to forget to hear the story. And one of the things I've struggled with over the past several years, and and I've seen this increasingly over the past decade, a decade ago, people were asking first about Jesus and evidence for Jesus. Now people are asking first about moral issues and specifically about Christians and their view of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people, things like that. They ask that first, and sometimes they're already against the Christian view on these issues. And it's hard sometimes to get from that issue to talk about Jesus, because it's hard to make that transition from that issue that you're trying to face. We're trying to testify to God's truth there, but we also need to get to the gospel and to Jesus and to the evidence for Jesus if that's a struggle they have. Are there any ways that you found that it's helpful to be able to get from that issue to Jesus and to talk about Jesus? Well, okay, so about three weeks ago now, I think it was, at the Dove Awards there in Nashville, we did a one-day event afterwards. Like everybody else, we're seeing that there are musicians and public Christians who are either failing or falling or moving away from Christianity and deconstructing and all these things we see all the time. And they have a huge impact on the church because they've been stars publicly. They've been singers. And so we thought, how can we get where we can talk about Christian worldview with artists? So we went to the Dove Awards. The next day, we had about 20 artists who came to an event where we just talked about the Christian worldview. I think it'll get bigger each year, but that's where we started. And I know that one of the questions that people have is like, hey, what if I'm in an interview and that topic comes up, a topic about gender identity or about sexuality or marriage or even about sanctity of life? In other words, if a moral topic is raised by the interviewer, how do we answer that? Like, what do I say? And everyone wants, honestly, can you give me the 280 character silver bullet response that can retain my career, that will not make me tremendously unpopular, that won't kill future possibilities for me, that won't make me trend on Twitter? You get it. They want the silver bullet. And I have to be honest with them. Okay, there's no silver bullet. There's no way I can help you to take the positions of Jesus and make them popular to this culture right now. Instead, it's going to be what Jesus predicted and said all along. Blessed are you. When, not if. When people insult you and persecute you and falsely accuse you of all kinds of evil because of me. That is a prediction. That is a a promise. That's going to happen. He said, rejoice. (laughs) Your reward in heaven will be great. Not your reward here. Your reward in heaven will be great. Because in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he calls us to be salt and light. This is at the end of the Beatitudes. He tells us this is going to happen. There will not be a way. If you are going to speak the truth of God into the world of fallen humans, you're going to be treated like the prophets were before you. You're going to be insulted and persecuted and falsely accused of evil. And that's what you see happening right now. And so the question becomes, now what's really important is that next line. Rejoice and be glad because the reward in heaven will be great. In other words, a day is coming when you're going to be standing in front of the King of Kings. You're going to be standing in front of Jesus and you're going to to be, Jesus, I did what you asked me to do because it was more important for me to be faithful than famous. That's what we're up against. And I tell this to young people all the time. 
I'd much rather be in the inconvenient, unpopular truth than in the convenient, popular lie. So we have to make a decision. Which of these two do you want to be in? And I know for me to get to Jesus, I would say, look, in the end, would it matter to you if there was a God? Would that make a difference? Would you want to know what God wants of us? Now, I get it. They're going to argue that my version of God cannot be the real God because it doesn't happen to agree with what you like. (laughs) Isn't that funny? We all want a God shaped in our own image so we can just feel comfortable with whatever we believe. But wouldn't you expect if there's a God that he would probably have views that would be not probably accepted by most humans? Like there'd be a difference between humans and God, right? I mean, wouldn't you expect that his ways would be holier than ours or at least somehow different? And it turns out that, yeah, God's ways are different than the culture right now. They're hugely different. Would you expect anything else? Well, what projects are you working on right now? I know that you are always working on new content, new projects, new books, things like that. What's in the works for right now that we can be looking for in the next couple of years from you? Oh, dang. You know, you're the only person who's ever asked me that. (laughs) Isn't that funny? I mean, I've done a bunch of interviews, but like no one usually ever asked that question. I'm thinking, should I tell you what I'm working on? Yeah, I'll tell you what I'm working on. So I have one more book I want to do with Zondervan, and then we'll see what happens after that. But the next book... So here's what it is. I'm trying to hybrid these things, right? Like I'm, every one of these books I do, I want to be more and more creative and to stretch the genre of Christian apologetics so that it has a bigger audience. Because my fear is that those of us who are geeked out on apologetics are a super small, tiny percentage of the church. And I wish it was a bigger percentage. I wish more people thought that this was important because I think it would change the texture of the church and it would change the way we live as Christians. But, you know, it's right now, if you said apologetics, most Christians don't even know what that even means yet. And you're thinking, really? Yeah. Actually, if you travel around church to church, you will see that most people have no idea you could even make a case for this. And I think that's sad. So how do we get people to read books that they wouldn't otherwise read? Well, in Person of Interest, I put 400 illustrations in that book. And I tried to put in a, a narrative about the crime with Tammy and Steve Hayes that would kind of take you from chapter to chapter. Because I know a lot of people, if it's just the straight evidence for Christianity, they're out. Even as Christians, they're out. So I'm trying to figure out how do I throw the ball in a way that people want to catch it? Well, the next book is going to be Lessons for Life that you learn by investigating deaths. So it's just a number of stories over my career that I'm trying to offer cautionary tales, kind of like a rules for living kind of a book. But what's interesting about it is that each one of these ends up demonstrating something in my casework that the scriptures predicted thousands of years earlier. So what we're doing in this book is making a case for Christianity from biblical anthropology. So we're basically saying, hey, turns out that the Bible describes the world the way it really is. And let me tell you a number of stories from one overarching case that I think will demonstrate that, yeah, people, you'll recognize this too. The people are exactly as the ancient scriptures have described in a counterintuitive way that most people would say, really? That No, this is true. This is what Christians have always known if they've been reading the Bible carefully. And what we're also going to do in that book is to give you some rules. Here's the takeaway from this. Don't do this and you'll have a better life. You know, So it's kind of like Peterson's book on rules for living. It's also an apologetics book that puts together biblical anthropology. And also it is a, a, another murder mystery that we're going to unwrap over several chapters. So that's the next book. That sounds great. Looking forward to that. And thank you again so much for joining us on this program. We really appreciate you, your ministry, and your work. I really appreciate you having me. This is one of the funnest shows to do because we get to talk about more than just straight (laughs) apologetics. So I'm glad to be with you anytime. I'll come back. 
you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting the Apologetics Podcast, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of us, take a look at our website at theapologeticspodcast.com. Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry Podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast. I've got a-